Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for June 25th. I'm Andrew Walworth. Well, do we have the long-awaited, much-anticipated, and highly elusive infrastructure compromise that we've been talking about on this podcast for God knows how long? On Thursday morning, President Biden and a swarm of U.S. senators said yes. But within two hours, Biden gave a second press conference that said, well, maybe not. We'll try to understand what is going on in what is becoming one of the longer and more complex inside Washington negotiations. And we'll look at the future of American education. What have parents learned during the pandemic and what will teachers be teaching? Distance learning, critical race theory, gender studies. Luckily, we have with us today Andy Smerick, an expert in all things educational and a neighbor of mine here on Kent Island. He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and currently serves as the chair of the Maryland Higher Education Commission and previously was the president of the Maryland State Board of Education. Also here with me are Tom Bevan, co-founder and president of Real Clear Politics, and Carl Cannon, Washington bureau chief. So Tom, there's this great Tom Waits song. It's called Step Right Up, and he says, uh, the large print giveth and the small print taketh away. And I feel a bit like that describes Thursday when Joe Biden gave two press conferences on the infrastructure bill within two hours of each other. The first, this sort of kumbaya moment with 10 senators, including Christian Cinema, uh, usual suspects, where they said that they had reached this uh, $579 billion compromise bill. And then a second one where he said he wouldn't sign it unless there was a second bill that included a bunch of other stuff which people say could cost between three and six additional trillion dollars. Here's a direct quote. He said, uh, if this, meaning the uh, infrastructure compromise, is the only one that comes to my desk, I'm not signing it. So what is happening? Do we have a deal or do we not have a deal? (laughs) We don't know yet. And we're going to find out. I mean, it was pretty interesting. You had all these Republican senators who basically used their political capital to negotiate this compromise and go out there with him. On infrastructure, and then he turns right around and says, "No, I agree with Nancy Pelosi. Though, you know, we're gonna we're gonna you know jam through this budget resolution using reconciliation, right? So they'll need a Republican to get that done, and basically says we're gonna hold it hostage, and I won't sign this unless we get we get the other you know trillions of dollars. I mean, one of the things that Republicans did in this was to weed out all of the quote unquote human infrastructure, right, uh, and get it down and focused on." actual what what most people consider infrastructure right roads bridges airports broadband i mean the other interesting piece of this is uh you know how they how they're going about paying for it right democrats did not want to raise the gas tax republicans didn't want to raise corporate tax and so they came up with this hodgepodge of gimmickry right they're going to put 40 billion dollars into the irs on the assumption that that will result in 140 billion worth of new revenue because of audits and and quote unquote improved customer service right they're going to <laughs> strengthen fraud prevention after we've lost literally there are some reports that we've lost almost half of the stimulus that went out was was confiscated by you know fraudulent you know criminal gangs from overseas and the like that they're going to strengthen those systems and somehow that's going to be result in, in extra cash for the government, which we will then use to spend on infrastructure. So it seems sort of uh, and, and in typical Washington way that they, they've come up with a, a good plan on how to spend the money. They just don't have a good plan on how to raise the money. Uh, and it's, it's uh, a little bit of gimmickry on the part of both of the parties. Carl, the, the Wall Street Journal headline 
uh, and this is on most most of the major papers. Biden senators reach deal on infrastructure. That's the headline. Carl's going to gloat now. You have this <laughs> bet. You've bet. I think a case. I think it's up to a case of wine at this point. You think that there will be an infrastructure deal. How how are you feeling about your bet given that headline? When those ten senators and you you call them the usual suspects, what they really are that are the the, the ten people out of a hundred who believe in governing in the United States Senate. That's who they are. You know, Mitt Romney and Susan Collins and, you know, uh, Rob Portman, Manchin, Joe Manchin, of course, Rob Portman. Who else did I um, forget? Some of the Lisa Democrats. Murkowski. Yeah, Lisa Murkowski, uh, Kirsten Cinema. Yeah, I thought we had a deal. I had settled on a case of Chateau Montalena. And that was going to cost, that was going to, that's a, that's the, I was going to get the Chardonnay. And then I think the Stag's Leap Cabernet, that was going to set Tom back several hundred dollars. Those are the wines that won in the famous um, wine competition in Paris featured in Bottle Shock. But then Biden <laughs> sort of says casually, I'm, I was like, I, I rarely channel Mitch McConnell, but when Biden then said, oh, and by the way, I won't sign this unless we get all the other stuff that we weeded out of that bill in another bill. And I thought, that is an odd way to compromise. I wasn't sure what it meant. And Joe Biden must have an idea what it means. The long and short of it is I'm not counting on that wine just yet, Andy. I, I need some more clarification out of the White House. Well, Andy, you've been around Washington for a while. And I read you the, the Wall Street Journal headline, but the editorial says instant bipartisan double cross. That's how they described it. And I should also say I love The Usual Suspects. It's one of my favorite movies. So I use that term affectionately when I refer to these senators. <laughs> but Andy, and what do you make of this? Well, two things. One is I just want to underscore Carl's point, which is an important one that often gets lost nowadays, which is there are two types of people who uh, have public positions. There are show horses and there are workhorses. And people have talked about this a bunch recently, which is there's a difference between working within an institution to get things done or using an institution as a platform just so you can talk about stuff. And uh, fortunately, it appears that there are some people in the Senate who just don't, uh, they're not worried about their primary or getting on some cable news show. They want to get some things done. And so we ought to at least um, cordon that off as at least a, a good sign. There are people who want to govern, which we don't talk about all that much uh, anymore, but it's important. The second thing is actually like the political inside baseball thing, which is I've been wondering the extent to which this double cross was um, chatted about quietly among some number of people in the room prior, which is I could imagine a scenario where a bunch of these grown-ups said, listen, if we go ahead with this, the left is going to go crazy. They're going to be upset about this. And Biden said, yeah, I'm going to have to say something after this meeting and say reconciliation, something or other. Uh, and, you know, we know it's not going to work because no Republicans will vote for that or maybe cinema or mansion won't. But we got to throw them a bone after this. Uh, that's my most charitable explanation that he had to do something to make sure the uh, left, especially in the House, wouldn't go nuts on this. If that didn't happen and this was just straight a double cross, this is dirty pool, as they used to say. I mean, any Republican in that room should be furious. They negotiated in good faith and the deal that they thought they struck was actually not a deal. So, Tom, you know, this fourth dimensional chess that uh, Biden is playing, I guess, here. Um, Biden is playing a very difficult hand. He's got evenly divided Senate. He's got this small majority 
in the House. He's got the left wing of his party at his heels all the time. Is this smart politics or is it a cynical double cross? What's going on? Well, just for the record, I'm a non-believer in the whole four-dimensional chess thing. And John, I mean, people used to say that about Trump. Oh, Trump's, you know, he's four moves ahead of everybody. I'm like, no, he's not. He's just getting up there and saying, like, whatever comes to mind. Uh, I think that's the same with Biden. I think he, I, maybe it was discussed. I don't know if that's the case or not. I suspect it's it's just Joe Biden doing what Joe Biden does, which is he's he will get up there and say whatever comes to his mind as well. And he was put on the spot. So it'll be interesting to see how Republicans respond to this, especially those, as I said, who put their sort of political capital on the line for him and to be sort of slapped in the face right afterwards. We'll have to see. Andy, can I say something about this, uh, what Tom called the the human infrastructure? Our our listeners couldn't see the the air quotes uh, that Tom was (laughs) implying. But, um, you know, human infrastructure, that's called, there's another phrase for that. It's well known in Washington. It's called social spending. And there's nothing wrong with it. And, you know, if we ever if we wanted to talk about it or do a show about the non-infrastructure part of the infrastructure bill, I'd defend some of that spending, a lot of it. And it's it pulls well. But this idea that the House Democrats don't think they can get that spending through without, you know, roads and bridges and, and cybersecurity and broadband, they ought to be able to make the case on the merits of that spending. They believe passionately that global warming is an existential threat. They have, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars they want to spend mitigating that threat. They believe that the pandemic has shown that the caregiving infrastructure in this country, if I may use that word infrastructure, uh, needs bolstering. The way we care for the elderly, the way we care for after-school care. What the Democrats want is very much in character with who they are as a party. They talk about it. They ought to be able to make the case of it. And I don't necessarily think they lose on the merits. It would be nice from a government standpoint to me if the president would stand up to his own party and say, look, I'm all favor of that, let's, but let's move that legislation separately. He seems to want to say that. Um, again, I'm, I'm going by what Andy's saying there, the, the most charitable view of there is. He's saying, okay, I, I need this other bill. But it is still another bill. It's not infrastructure. So maybe this is progress towards getting um, some clarity there because these two, the, there's two b- buckets of spending and they're huge. So buckets isn't the right word. Ocean liners is maybe more like it. But that doesn't mean the Democrat stuff isn't good. It doesn't mean it's all bad. It doesn't mean it shouldn't pass. It just ought to pass on its merits is the point I'm trying to make. And there's a reason why we ought to have that debate, uh, not just because it's, again, not all that uh, helpful to sell an infrastructure bill and then um, try to get the social spending in it. But there is a discussion going on, not just on the left, but on the right, about what family policy ought to look like today. There are lots of folks on the kind of like religious right, some like more of the Catholic uh, intellectuals, who've been talking a whole lot about this idea of child allowances, kind of a beefed up uh, version of the child tax credit, and what we need to do about uh, fertility and making uh, having children just be uh, more affordable and that we have workplaces and just a society that is better for families in general. So this kind of debate ought to be had in the United States Congress. We ought to, ought to actually have a conversation about whether or not we have family-friendly policies or not. But if all of this just gets shoehorned into an infrastructure bill, again, air quotes, um, not only does that not feel right? It also uh, deprives us of the debate about what should Uncle Sam do, if anything, related to family policy. 
Speaking of families, let's talk about education. Andy, there was this interesting survey of college students released by Inside Higher Ed this week. They said nearly half of the students would rate the value of their education this past year as fair or poor. And this is the more important one. I think more than half say they learned less this year compared to pre-COVID years. So what, what's going on here? Let's talk about higher ed first. This has been a great experiment. When I say great, I mean a big experiment. I've had three kids go through it this year, all college kids. It hasn't been great for our family. But I'm wondering whether this uh, survey sort of squares with what you've learned. It does. And I should say, because I have an official state position, everything I'm about to say about education reflects my views, not of the institution that I, uh, on which I serve. But this survey from higher education parallels what we've learned from surveys at the K-12 level going back almost a year now, which is there's this narrative out there that all parents across America were furious about schools being closed. It turns out that that's actually not right. Um, Often 70%, then 65%, then 60% of K-12 families even were saying from the beginning of the pandemic all the way into the spring of this year that they were quite nervous about sending their kids back to school for a whole host of different reasons. And some of this depended on rural versus urban, black versus white. But the narrative that everybody wanted their kids to go back full-time without masks just wasn't true. But what's interesting, in all of those surveys, parents were completely eyes wide open about the costs of doing this. They knew that their kids weren't learning as much. They also knew that um, there were social-emotional costs. This is like the new term of art. Kids weren't getting socialized enough. They weren't around their other kinds of friends. They weren't learning other kinds of skills. But what it turned out is that families held these two views at the same time. Yikes, I don't feel safe about sending my kid back to school, but I know it's not a perfect deal. They're not learning very much, but this is the compromise we got to make in one awful year. And so now what we're seeing is the same thing at the higher education level, that kids realize that online learning wasn't good. They weren't learning nearly as much. And hopefully this will be one year and done, like come fall, hopefully everything is back to normal. But this just recognizes the, the real life decisions people were making. This is terrible. We don't like it, but we have to do it. Tom, you've got kids. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have elementary, right? Uh, Middle school, high school, and college. We went through it at all four levels and um, to varying degrees of success uh, or failure. It was mostly bad for us uh, as a family. You know, the kids, again, uh, did not, our, our youngest kids, you know, hated it. We actually pulled them out and homeschooled them because they were just, you know, our youngest just would get up and cry every morning, didn't want to sit Wait, in front of his... So, so you pulled them out of distance learning to homeschool them, mm-hmm. yeah. which was another form of distance learning, though, right? Correct. Yeah. But I mean, because because in particular, our youngest, he he hated being on Zoom all day, just sitting there on his iPad. I mean, he just... So that we we had... Luckily, we had a... Um, my my wife's brother was already doing this and had already researched curriculums and and the like and was able to we were sort of able to lean on him to plug our kids into a system and and actually it was way better because the kids could sort of work at their own pace uh, they they really enjoyed it a lot more than just sitting there on Zoom listening to you know uh, whatever all day long so that actually was an improvement from but again it still wasn't great. Um, you know, what's interesting from a public policy perspective, too, is that whatever disparities existed within classrooms prior to COVID, right, where you, you have a lot of, you know, where teachers are, are trying to teach 
students of various abilities and, and in different, you know, some kids are more advanced and some are not, that gap is going to be massive, uh, much bigger than it was before, because a lot of the kids that that suffered the most were kids that really needed to learn and and keep pace with learning and had fallen even further behind, I think. So, you know, I'm hopeful that that this year everybody's back in school and we'll be back to sort of normal, but I do worry that it's going to be really, really tough for for teachers to be teaching this group of kids that's going to be, you know, have have huge disparities in, in terms of where they are uh, at, at grade level, above grade level, below grade level. Um, that's going to be a real challenge. Carl? Well, I, I, I was thinking while they, Tom and Andy were talking, I mean, you know, this disparity that the teachers are going to have to, they're going to have to face it. And we've, you know, the teachers unions have been criticized by conservatives, but they face, teachers face the same concern that Andy talked about. You know, you, you got to have two thoughts in your head at one time. And w- one of them is kids need to be in school, but the other one is the teachers didn't want to risk their own health. And I, I was sympathetic to that. A lot of them had, you know, a lot of teachers are of all ages, but, you know, some of them live with their parents, some of them are taking care of their parents, and they didn't want to they didn't want to get killed. They didn't want to die to go to the classroom. So the unions, you know, protected them. When they ran into trouble politically, and they should have, is when the teachers union in Los Angeles and other places, Chicago, linked it to other issues in Los Angeles. Said, we won't come back to work to get rid of charter schools. I mean, that's a shorthand, but that that's really was taking advantage. That was cynical and, and improper. But but the teachers who said, you know, we want to make sure we're safe. Well, now, you know, this hasn't entirely gotten away. Some of these kids are going to come back to school. You're going to have, are they, some schools are going to have the kids wear masks. Some are not going to wear masks. I think that's a whole nother level, Andy. I mean, can kids learn as well with masks as not masks? There's no, no social science on it, but there will be. We, we're we not out of the woods yet with the schools. But I think, I think that Tom's fear that the kids who are doing well are going to be doing okay and the kids who are doing bad are going to be doing worse. That's the great challenge that we have to face. And, you know, I don't know what the policymakers are thinking about that, but maybe the the children who fell further behind, special needs kids and kids who are already at risk, maybe they're going to need more time in the classroom. Maybe they're going to need more resources than they've been given in the past. I, I got a question for Andy. Um, you know, Andy, there's this push we've seen around various school districts and, you know, to do away with advanced classes, to do away with testing, right? Um, and it's going to be hard to, hard to measure the, you know, exactly what happened if they aren't doing testing for reading and math and the like. Is that a mistake? Should we push even harder for testing to figure out exactly where all these kids are and how we can best serve them? Or is that an appropriate thing to say, you know what, last year was just an anomaly. Let's take a pass on the testing and we'll skip over it. Because I've heard from a couple of different people that it's not just the one year because you lose the you lose the ability to test where they were versus year prior. And then when you go to next year, you won't be able to tell, right? You won't have a benchmark to look back upon. Yeah, very good question. So two thoughts on this. One is uh, states really started doing testing of kids in third through eighth grade and then at least once in high school, be, right before the No Child Left Behind Act, but then after the No Child Left Behind Act, then this was codified with the Every Student Succeeds Act. So for at least 20, 25, in some cases 30 years, 
public schools have been required to do testing of reading and math, most kids in a whole lot of grades. And there has generally been resistance to this in some quarters, but uh, American like parents and school systems have got acclimated to this, and we get used to getting the test scores and having interventions based on it, and we can like help kids and help school systems if we have it. Never has that been more important probably than right now, because we have a bunch of hypotheses about what schools did well and what they did wrong, which kids suffered, which ones thrived, but all of it is guesswork unless we actually have assessment data. So it was virtually impossible to assess in the uh, traditional ways last spring, um, and then this year's going to be tough, but absolutely, we need to have this data, we need to have it disaggregated so we know which student groups suffered, which ones did well, so we can have interventions. Uh, so people will be pushing and saying, don't do testing, but they've been saying that since you know 1995, we're going to do it anyway. But can I add one other thing about this like online thing that's, I think, really important? Had the pandemic happened 30 years ago, it would have happened, and then everybody would have just assumed, well, we're going to go right back to our traditional public school when it's done. The interesting thing is 30 years ago, 1990, 1991, that was before charter schools. That was before private school choice programs. It was before online learning. It was before the recent explosion of what we call hybrid homeschooling. Um, really like the the fame that some homeschool online programs have gotten. Before the invention of pods. Before the invention of what we're calling hubs. So now we've had 50 million kids in public schools who were forced to do something other than traditional public schooling for a year plus. And now the question is, how many of them are going to fall back to what they've always done in the past? And how many of them are going to do what you suggested, which is um, some version of homeschooling or hybrid schooling or go to like a pod or a hub or all these different mechanisms? My point is, uh, come September, October, November, we may recognize that a million, two million, five million kids who we thought were going to go back to their traditional public schools did not. They're doing something completely different. And that's because over 30 years we've been innovating with all these different types of programs. And we just don't know what the future looks like. That's why, Andy, the, the stuff you see at the Loudoun County uh, schools and, and you know other places where San Francisco wants to rename every school named after a white person, uh, even if they fought for the in the Union Army in the Civil War, why, why these battles that have come up independent of the pandemic, um, and they were going to be fought out anyway, but why this is a particularly perilous time for these conversations to be had. Because I think, uh, if Andy's right, millions of parents are looking at the schools with an open mind and thinking, okay, uh, that isn't my only option. Correct. And, uh, you know, and so if we if we care about public schools, and I do, uh, you know, so, some of this rhetoric has to be toned down. And the, I think these educators need to realize that they're, they're facing a, a, a threat there. They may, you know, they don't want to lose their customers. They don't want to lose a slice of their, of their, of the most committed parents. So Andy, I want to talk about critical race theory in a second, but, but just before we leave this, there was this other data that came out this week that I thought was interesting. I think, think this was from Brookings. It said there are these gaps along racial and ethnic lines about people wanting to return to school, which I found sort of surprising. There were 19% of white parents want fully remote uh, education, 43% of blacks don't want to send their kids back, I guess, and 42% of Hispanics. What's going on? 
Yeah, so this data started popping up in surveys last summer, and it has held consistently through. Now, the only difference is back in, say, I don't know, June, July, August, even September um, of this previous school year, it might have been like 85% of black families wanted to stay out of school and 60% of white families. So all of those numbers have come down, but the gap between races has remained in the same way that there remains a gap between Republicans and Democrats, between rural and urban, um, between high income and low income. So these are pretty pronounced, and there are lots of hypotheses for why this is the case. In general, kind of the the surveys that have been done and some of the social science research is there are a whole lot of black families and Hispanic families who did not like a host of things that were going on with their traditional public schools, safety, achievement gap related things, but then also just this more general, um, some people call it, you know, systemic racism, but just a concern, like looking at the data that COVID was hitting black families harder than white families. So when black families put all this stuff together, they were much more risk averse about going back to school. And so when they are given these options of hybrid homeschooling, pods, online learning, they are much more willing to take that as an option uh, than just go back to a system that they thought was unfair to begin with. But these, the data that you pointed out, we started getting an inkling of this right when the pandemic hit, and now we're starting to see the fruits of it. Is it, the cha- it could be very well the case that in lots of urban areas, for example, where schools have remained shut, where lots of families are unhappy, that a disproportionate number of families, including low-income and minority families, pick some option this coming school year other than their traditional public school. Andy, what are the politics of this? If you're an inner city school and you're losing your customers, do you lose funding? Do you go out of business? What what happens? Oh, okay, so we could do a, a six-hour show just on this question. But so the short answer is that because of state funding formulas and this influx of federal funds, these schools will be held essentially harmless for quite some time. They will have money. But if it turns out to be the case that some number of students permanently leave the system, like they go, they use a private school choice program, or they go to a private school, or they do homeschooling, because a lot of these schools are funded on a per-pupil basis, the schools will lose that money. But this is why a lot of schools, including urban school systems, are trying to do clever things to keep their kids, like do these uh, micro-school programs or figure out how that they can do an online program and hybrid, have kids at home sometime. So schools since the early 1990s when they've had to compete with all these different types of um, school choice programs have figured out how to try to keep families in but now that more families have had an option of something else and they liked it it is going to be hard for these school systems but to your point New York City has a million 1.1 million kids in the school system if a hundred thousand students decide not to come back all of a sudden, we're talking about, you know, multiply 100,000 by 20,000 kids, $20,000 per student. All of a sudden, we're talking about billions of dollars that could be um, moving away from the school system. So this is a real issue for school districts. Well, Carl, let's talk about critical race theory. It's the other education issue we wanted to get to today. We did have this, you know, week-long sort of drama out of Loudoun County that uh, Fox News, at least, covered wall-to-wall. It was it was pretty amazing. It was not on a lot of the other networks, I will say. Um, Curious. Yeah. And then, then you know, we did have uh, the Secretary of Education testifying uh, in a virtual 
setting up on Capitol Hill. He's being grilled by Representative Bob Good, who's a Virginia Republican, over this critical race theory. And at one point, New Jersey Democrat Donald Norquist's name sort of flashed on the screen for a second, and someone, we don't know who, yelled racist uh, at Bob Good, I guess. No one has acknowledged who it was that, uh, that, that yelled it. Is this a real issue? Is this a made-up issue? Some people are saying that it's not important. The media that I read, the Washington Post, New York Times, they've, they have a construct that's become commonplace, and they'll write uh, stories about why Republicans are talking about critical race theory. They don't actually ever interview any Republicans in these stories. They just, uh, and, and the, the punchline is always the same because uh, they're racist, because they don't want to share power, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it's a straw man argument. What's going on is not that Republican, the Republican strategists have come up with some new master stroke way to get the House back. What's happened is that this has bubbled up from the grassroots. And that's what you saw in Loudoun County. And when you have a school elected school board president in a public building during a public meeting that by state law has to be open to the public saying, I'm declaring this meeting out of order. I'm declaring this an illegal gathering. Um, you realize that the, that the establishment's been caught unawares. This is, this is a revolution from the grassroots. It's motivated by many things. The transgender activists who've insisted on things in the curriculum for young kids, uh, by critical race theory itself, but, 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 but by a general sense that our public institutions are not teaching unity anymore, they're teaching division. And this is a real fear. Liberals, I think, ignore this or mischaracterize it at their own peril because I, I haven't seen any serious person say that we shouldn't be teaching black history or even that we've taught it well in the past. I think there is a consensus in this country that we have to be honest about the past. And, and that can be painful. But have, running workshops in schools telling white kids that because they're born white, um, there's something wrong with them and they have, should have, feel guilty. Taxpayers aren't going to put up with it. Pe mil tens of millions of people are not going to send their kids to schools that, that do this. And so this is a problem. And I, as I said, it came up at just the wrong time. It, 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 became, it hit critical mass during a pandemic, which was a coincidence and not a happy one. But it's something that once we're through the pandemic and the country's vaccinated and this, this, this health crisis is averted, we're going to have to deal with. And the only way to deal with it is for each side to listen to the other, which is something we've proven uniquely bad at in American politics in the last three or four years. So, Tom, is this a winning issue for Republicans? I mean, certainly in Virginia, where we've got this governor's race coming up, it's, it's emerging as a pretty big issue. Terry McAuliffe uh, calls it a GOP conspiracy. Um, Glenn Youngkin, who's the uh, Republican nominee, says that he wants to eradicate uh, racially-based education curriculum. Well, I don't think it's a winning issue for the Democrats. I mean, the two main issues for suburbans usually are, you know, safety and education. Right. And we've got a crime problem in, you know, my city of Chicago. I mean, <clears throat> you know, we don't even let our kids go downtown anymore because of the carjackings. I mean, it's just not safe, which is, um, you know, unfortunate. And so you, I think between the crime issue, but, but also this issue, it's, it's, it is not a phony issue. Democrats have, have gone out and, and said, listen, they're making this up. It isn't happening. You know, uh, there was an interesting, exchange earlier this week, uh, Joy Reid on MSNBC had Christopher Rufo on her program and to sort of go head to head with him 
on the issue of critical race theory, and it's an instructive thing. I mean, you should watch it. It's, you know, 10 minutes long or so, and she basically spends eight minutes talking over him. I think it's on RCP, so I think you can watch it there. Yeah, um, and and basically tries to discredit him and suggest that he doesn't know what he's talking about and suggest that, you know, critical race theory, these things that are being taught in the classroom, sort of like a semantic sleight of hand argument, right? It's like, uh, well, that's not critical race theory. Uh, you know, we're teaching something else. I mean, that's the, you're you're conflating these things, and uh, it's just people know what's going on. They've had experience at it, probably at their own local level. We saw earlier this year school board uh, elections around the country that were became suddenly hot issues. I mean, people for the first time since I've been doing this, since I can remember, you know, there were signs in yards in our neighborhood and in other neighborhoods for school board elections, and people were actually paying attention to them and, you know, rallying people to go to these meetings. So it's not it's not a phoning issue. It's a real issue. Uh, I think, to Carl's point, it is bubbling up from the grassroots. And if Democrats continue to just sort of try and deny it or suggest, as some have done, that this is just, you know, uh, you know, uh, white supremacy or white privilege rearing its ugly head or that people are, are somehow... Um, their motives for doing this are somehow racial in, in nature. I think I think they're making a huge mistake. Andy, what do you think? Well, putting aside like the merits of CRT as like an academic discipline and like then how it can be distorted, uh, especially when teaching elementary school kids. Let's just put that to the side for a second. The political policy aspect of this is it's um, this is Common Core 2.0 for those of us who like went through this a decade plus ago. Uh, what Common Core was, was similar in this way. It was a bunch of really smart, elite, often academic people who decided that they knew what was best for America's schools. And so they created these new standards, and there were these, going to be these assessments that are aligned with them, and they were just going to kind of make this happen, and they thought it was great and brilliant, and it was going to affect all 100,000 public schools, everything would be great. They forgot to um, remember that American public education is a democratic institution. It's governed by democratically legitimate state legislatures and 13,500 local school boards. And so when there was a sense among parents that something was happening to the content of America's schools that was being led by people in D.C. or elsewhere that they didn't know and that they probably didn't trust, slowly at the grassroots level, percolated and then it grew into a movement where people were like this common core thing and all these assessments we are rejecting this and it caught a lot of the elites off guard and so we went through a couple years of throwing out standards and throwing out tests i thought we had learned the lessons of that and it wouldn't happen again in my professional career and yet here we are again where all of like the crt stuff kind of took off and a lot of like elites um especially publications and media really liked this thing and families started to slowly see we don't like what we're seeing in some of our schools and some of these stories, especially in private schools or big um, school systems. And so they have revolted at the local level in state legislatures. And this is just a great example of people want to control what's in their schools democratically. And when they feel like things have gone sideways, it takes them a long time to get enraged. But once they get upset about it, it is a movement that you cannot stop. So I think this is going to go on for quite some time. I don't know if it's going to last until the midterm election, but this is going to be a political issue, especially in red areas for some time. So you've sort of anticipated my question, which is, isn't the overall problem here is what the heck is the federal government doing trying to dictate 
what curricula is for for local schools. I mean, and this would go to President Trump's idea of sort of patriotic history as well. I mean, is that really the federal role? And shouldn't this really be left at the local level and different schools can do whatever they want? Well, we can blame Jimmy Carter for that. Um, Jimmy Carter ran for president and he he was a obscure one-term uh, ex-governor of Georgia, but a guy who cared about public education and he thought a lot about it. He all, he thought enough about the political implications that he courted a new force in American politics then, the teachers union, and they helped him win in Iowa. They helped him be nominated. And when he became president, uh, he delivered on a campaign promise, which was to have a federal department of education. You have a federal department of education. What's it going to do? What's well, going to advise, but what it's mostly going to do is give money. And once the federal government starts giving money, then the federal government starts giving advice to go along with that money. And here we are. It's also, I think, part of the reason this has become a national debate, too, is is because people feel like teachers and the, the, the system itself has sort of crossed the line from instruction to indoctrination, right? They're not – it's not just that they're teaching, uh, you know – both sides, right? It's, this is not even, I mean, s- some folks are calling to ban CRT, but a lot of folks aren't. They're saying, listen, you know, we should teach that, but we can also teach, you know, differing points of view. Um, if you're going to read something from Robin DiAngelo in class, you should read something from Glenn Lurie or Thomas Sowell, right? And you should be able to to evaluate those arguments on the merits. And <clears throat> and that is simply not happening. These kids are being force-fed one, one viewpoint. And I think that's what has parents... Uh, you know, up in arms. And again, that's that, that makes it a much broader debate. Yeah. So Andy, I'm going to give you the last word this week, which is because you gave a thumbs up while Tom was talking there. Our listeners couldn't see that. But is there a solution here? Is there a way to do this? Well, when I was in college, I had a couple professors um, in different disciplines who made this argument about if you're going to study justice and you only know Rawls, you actually don't even know Rawls. In order to understand justice, you need to read Aquinas, and you need to read Aristotle, and you need to read Rawls, and you need to read Kant, and you read to, need to read Nozick, and on and on and on. That to actually understand the subject, you need all of these different lenses. When I studied mythology, our professors would say, you know, you need to read this with a feminist lens, but also with a Jungian lens, or um, a, a, a hero with a thousand faces, Joseph Campbell lens. The point is, to study a subject, you should use all these different disciplines to figure out what the real answer is. And so CRT can be an invaluable way of looking at history, looking at literature in conjunction with other things, as long as it is complemented. And I think what a lot of people are concerned about is it can be used in a way that crowds out our understanding of anything else or that disallows students to raise other types of objections. Um, And so that's why it sort of feels like it's more of an ideology than a way of looking at things. But just like sort of on this final point, the federal government really didn't need to and hasn't been involved in this all that much. They just made this totally unforced error in the Biden early days where they had this small grant program on civics and history and they decided to write in an introduction of it name checking a couple programs that were particularly incendiary among some groups including like the 1619 project which they didn't need to do in general this could be a classroom based discussion a school based discussion a district based discussion a state based discussion but once the federal government decided to put its nose in this thing it just took it to a whole nother level just like with race to the top 
did with Common Core. It went from a state discussion of standards and content to Uncle Sam telling us what you need to do with all of our schools. Um, I just wish someone had pulled aside the president or secretary of education and said, like, this is a hot debate. You do not want to get involved in this. But for some reason, they decided to get involved, and it just took up, what was it, a simmer up to a boil. Well, Andy Smerick, you have raised the bar here at this podcast. I, don't, I think you're the first person to name check Thomas Aquinas and Immanuel Kant. <laughs> <laughs> so, thanks for that. Are those football players? That's Carl and I are usually talking about sports. Next time we'll talk football. Did throw a no-hitter? Did, did Aquinas throw a no-hitter last night, Carl? Played left field like, for the Sox. <laughs> but Andy, thanks for everything. I want to thank Tom Babin, Carl Cannon, Andy Smerrick. We're here in various shapes and forms, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, so bookmark this podcast. Come back often. You can always find out more at realclearpolitics.com. And as I always do, I urge you to visit Real Clear Politics. Read at least one article from a publication or writer with whom you disagree. And uh, you can go to realcleareducation.com for more news on education if you want to learn more about the issues we were talking about today. Thank you for listening. This has been the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, June 25th. Until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walworth. <laughs>